Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today is our fourth and final episode on LGBTQ history and rights, with our essential texts being the Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges, Michael Warner's book, The Trouble with Normal, Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity by Jose Esteban Munoz, and No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive by Lee Edelman. And today we're going to discuss the last of those two titles. And my reading partner is the spectacularly brilliant historian and teacher and my dear friend, Matthew Nelson. I'm so, so excited for this conversation with you today, Matthew. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be back in conversation with you, Amy. I'm so, so glad that I read these books because they've really helped me develop my empathy and my understanding and even just my knowledge of history. But especially with this last text, this was probably the most challenging. And you shared some context with me the other day that was really, really illuminating and really helpful. So I'm wondering if you could start out our episode by sharing that with our listeners right now. Absolutely. This is the reason why I really wanted to study these texts with you, Amy, because of this framing that has made these texts very meaningful to me. Few communities, like survivors of genocide, understand what it is to face annihilation, both as an individual and a member of a group. I was just a boy when the HIV-AIDS brutalized the queer community, but as a student of history, I try to read every book, watch every movie I can related to this extraordinary but tragic moment in order to understand it all better. David French's How to Survive a Plague, an emotionally arresting and informative book, it's also a documentary, most certainly rank among my favorites to help me inhabit the experiences of gay men who went through all of this and who bore the brunt of the pandemic in the long 1980s. I also obsessively watch movies like Angels in America, Beats Per Minute, and The Normal Heart, because I never want to be too far away from my community's brush with queer generational annihilation. I talked to all of my gay forefathers of San Francisco about this darkness. One of the common themes remarked on frequently in these conversations is the disenchanting experience of seeing crowds of young gay men ambling about the sidewalks like zombies, emaciated and stumbling. They tell me that they went to a funeral like every week, sometimes even multiple times a week. Their circle of friends vanquished in the span of a decade. I used to live on Alamo Square in San Francisco, and I would jog to the Castro, a historically gay neighborhood, to visit my gym. I passed an older African-American man who sold beautiful flower arrangements on a street corner who would smile and wave almost every time I passed. One day, I saw another of these documentaries called We Were Here, and I recognized that one of the men profiled in this PBS film was Guy, the same street-side florist who waved me on as I made my way to the gym. The next workout I resolved to stop and say hi to Guy. So I did. He was delighted that I admired his contributions to the film. I asked him what it must have been like to sell the funeral flowers to attendees of all these funerals. Guy elaborated on his stories of death and dying for me, of course, with a really somber tone. 
but he wanted me to know that younger gay men like me have to remember that death is forevermore an important part of our history, and we cannot be afraid of death. Instead, and this is where his tone shifted to a kind of jubilance. We have a future. Hmm. Queer theorist Heather Love characterizes this contradictory experience as looking forward while feeling backward. And I just love that. Looking forward while feeling backward. Guy's words reminded me of the concluding interviews with ACT UP leaders Greg Bordowitz, David Barr, and Peter Staley in France's How to Survive a Plague. This is when they're reflecting on how they, through the long 1980s, from 1981 to 1996, how as an activist group, how they pulled together to fight for HIV AIDS treatments, to stand up against religious authority when they were stigmatizing and oppressing them, and also to a government that was largely calloused um, to their needs. They say, this is Bordowitz speaking, I feel very fortunate, and there's probably a lot of complicated reasons why, but I still find it very difficult to plan for the future and or accept that I will have a long life, which is unfortunate because I've had a long life and I've been living with AIDS for 20 years, but it's hard for me to relax into life. And Barr, his colleague, says, I know lots of us went through really difficult times after um, trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? You know, not just because I didn't think I had a future and now I do. So I have to make some plans, but how do I do something else that is, I mean, it's a weird word, but as fulfilling as that work has been. And Peter Staley says, to be that threatened with extinction and to not lay down, to stand up and to fight back the way we did it, the way we took care of ourselves and each other, the goodness that we showed, the humanity that we showed the world is just mind-boggling, just incredible. These three men had just come back from a war with AIDS, and they experienced survivor's guilt, caught between a bewildering present and a future that these men didn't think they had. They essentially asked, how do I order my life, especially when I have spurned the patriarchal scripts of heteronormative temporality. This tension between the present and the future is at the heart of today's queer theory about queer temporality that we discussed in that last episode. If you recall, we studied what heteronormative temporality was and contrasted it with the imaginative constructions of queer temporality that Michael Warner offered us. Today, we encounter the dueling theories of queer temporality from Lee Edelman and Jose Esteban Munoz taking the dispute over queer temporality into the 21st century. That's a beautiful introduction, Matthew, and listeners will appreciate why I found it so moving and um, so illuminating, really, as we approach a text that's called you know, the, the subtitle is queer theory and the death drive, right? What is that? What, what does that mean? Death drive? And why would that be a part of a, you know, a guiding philosophy 
of life, really. And so that's just a, a fantastic way to start us out. So I'll introduce the authors of these two texts that we're going to be comparing and contrasting today. So Lee Edelman was born in 1953. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree from Northwestern University, and he received a Master's of Philosophy and a PhD from Yale University. He is an American literary critic and an academic, and he serves as a professor of English at Tufts University. And his students give rave reviews on RateMyProfessor.com. So <laughs> if in reading his texts, we scratch our heads going, what is he saying? Uh-huh. His students love him. And yeah, uh, awesome. apparently his, um, his class on Alfred Hitchcock is one not to be missed at Tufts. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he talks a lot about Hitchcock movies in the book. And I thought that was such an interesting... I haven't read much film criticism. And I thought that was such an interesting and unique and really effective like medium to illustrate his point. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Very, very well versed in, in film critique as well. Very obviously. That's Mm -hmm. cool to know about him. Our other author today, Jose Esteban Munoz, was born in Havana, Cuba in 1967 and moved to Florida with his parents the year he was born. He received his undergraduate education at Sarah Lawrence College in 1989 with a BA in comparative literature. And in 1994, he completed his doctorate in literature at Duke University. He was a professor at New York University's Titch School of the Arts until his death in 2013. So Matthew, last episode, we found Michael Warner's The Trouble with Normal, really quite comprehensible, even if we were unsure whether we could embrace (laughs) all of his ideas. Um, He's a very clear writer, and it was a a really relatively, you know, easy conversation. But as we talked about before, Munoz and Edelman had me pulling my hair out. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) and I appreciate, I have to say, I appreciate you warning me before I started reading. You warned me that even, you know, some of your smartest and most educated friends had a hard time with these guys. So that helped save my ego as I was reading it. But I just, in general, is, why would you say that queer theory can be so difficult to understand sometimes? Yeah, that's a great question, Amy, because I think that queer theory has so much to offer the world and the fact that it can be sometimes so impenetrable, just so unapproachable is really quite unfortunate. I think it's important to remember that queer theory has multiple influences upon it, like postmodernism and feminist theory and gender studies psychoanalytics, and even philosophy in general. And these domains in and of themselves can sometimes be very difficult to tackle in um, a course of study. So Mm -hmm. most of this material is written by academics for academics. Our authors today are really steeped in this tradition where they have read these canonical esoteric writings within queer theory, and they're contributing back to the field So sometimes I get the impression that they feel like in order for their their works to count and to matter, that they have to match this established academic style that has been set for them. Sometimes style is substance. The queer should be abstruse, right? Because it's, well, it's queer. So 
you know, maybe that's it. I, I, I don't know, really. I, I do wish that these powerful ideas were packaged in more coherent prose, though. Given, really, how important the theory is to helping us evolve our thinking, our humanity. But for now, this is what we have. And we will do our best to elucidate its profundity. You know, I as I say to my students, it's... <laughs> I'm here to offer up the ideas of other people. I've got my own ideas, but I want to be a conduit to the world for my students. I want them to make up their own minds about all the ideas that are on offer uh, in in our time today and in the past. So, yeah, I'm trying to make things a little bit clearer, and I hope that we can accomplish that today. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was just saying also offline before we started how when we read Aristotle in our grad school program together that our professor said, nobody likes reading Aristotle, but everybody <laughs> likes talking about his ideas. His ideas continue to challenge us and to um, you know, help us formulate how we see the world and how we see ourselves. So it's super important ideas. And so, yeah, I, I mean, that made a lot of sense talking about these thinkers coming out of the tradition of philosophy where it's kind of the world of academics, but their ideas are so, so important. And a master teacher can make them accessible. So um, excited to have you do that again today. So before we start the books, though, do you have any more like historical context that we'll need to understand before we, you know, start reading passages from the books? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if our listeners will recall that in previous episodes, we mentioned that the queer liberationist movement co-arises with the religious right in America. So it's important to see these two major social movements gaining steam more or less simultaneously. As queers are coming out of the closet, celebrating Eros and are politically organizing in the 1970s, the religious right is branding feminists, queers, and black Americans as enemies of this country. The religious right, the very transparent crusader of patriarchy and heteronormative power, see gay men in particular as the greatest threat to the family, to Christian society, to respectable bourgeois lifestyles. And so what with, you know, this queer community, their non-normative sexuality, their effeminate ways, their carefree lifestyles, the fact that they're just having so much fun the religious right warns America <laughs> away from this alternative lifestyle. And this is definitely uh, well illustrated in the movie Milk, if anyone's seen the movie Milk, where you have Harvey Milk and you have Supervisor White going back and forth with their banter. And Harvey Milk is often saying to Supervisor White that he uh, doesn't really appreciate how much fun adults can really have with each other. And so he's always sort of ribbing him about that. Um, well, <laughs> so then here, and this is getting back into the history here. Then July 3rd, 1981, the New York Times published an article entitled Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. At this point, wow. yeah, I mean, everyone is dumbfounded. What could this be? No one can explain it. This is why they term it the gay cancer. This is why it enters the public lexicon, because it's showing up only in gay men at this particular time. And it's not just here in the United States, but in London and in Paris, the same thing is happening. In 1982, 
Larry Speaks, who's press press secretary to President Ronald Reagan, joked about, quote, gay plague in the press briefing room. And you can Google this, listeners at home, and you can listen to Larry Speaks laughing with the press corps about gay plague. In Again, this is in the, the press briefing room itself of the White House. By 1984, gay plague, now called HIV AIDS, would already have infected 7,700 Americans and killed 3,500. Staggering numbers. Now, you might say not staggering compared to COVID-19. That's fair. But when you consider the number of people who are dying from this small embattled minority, it can Mm -hmm. seem like it is world ending. As the CDC it is, and that's a super. Oh, sorry. No, I'm no, just please go ahead. In, and that's a that's a super super high case fatality rate too. Seven thousand seven hundred Americans infected and thirty five hundred died from it. That's crazy mortality. Um, Absolutely, really. It's it's a really devastating number, especially relative to the fact that the government is doing relatively nothing and not even talking about this. Uh, Another disease that emerges at this time is called Legionnaire's disease. Mm -hmm. And the government seems to mobilize relatively quickly for Legionnaire's Mm -hmm. disease. And it does not have the kind of virulent effects that HIV AIDS has, but the government jumps into action for that, but Mm -hmm. doesn't for HIV AIDS early on here. As the CDC and the National Institutes for Health were trying to investigate this strange new virus, President Reagan, making good on his pledge to rein in big government, starve the beast, he slashes their budgets. So they don't have the resources to investigate, much less find a cure for HIV AIDS. Except for the likes of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, who were calling AIDS God's judgment on gays and America, the government leadership remained silent and really unresponsive. Not until 1985, I think it is, that President Reagan even publicly mentions AIDS, when by this time, 12,000 people were already dead of the epidemic. And really, by then, even with the Surgeon General, this is C. Everett Koop, warning the country in 1986 about AIDS, the malignant neglect had already set into motion the massacre. Cases exploded from 47,000 in 1987 to, I hope you're sitting, half a million in 1995. This is what theorists, scholars call necropolitics. Ah, so necro means death. So like the politics of death. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Necropolitics is the power of the state to determine who gets to live and who must die. Achille Membe, who is a Cameroonian scholar, he's an esteemed post-colonial philosopher, wrote scholarly pieces about necropolitics, detailing how the idea speaks to who the state deems disposable and who isn't, and how the state enacts this decision. With the state's necropower in moments of crisis, who should be saved and who should be sacrificed on the altar of state interests? 
This comes into stark relief. Therefore, for example, if President Reagan didn't direct the government to respond to AIDS because he mistakenly thought it just affects the loathsome community of gay men, well, then the state was consequently consigning a marginalized population to extinction. Think about, I don't know, the Obama administration's drone warfare program. President Mm. Obama authorized the kills of suspected Middle Eastern terrorists and in the process claimed the lives of innocent people, sometimes women or children. These are non-combatants. These are people who the Geneva Conventions protects. This Mm -hmm. is necropolitics. In our own times, when President Trump fantastically thought that COVID-19 would, and I think you'll all remember this, like a miracle, Mm -hmm. said COVID would just disappear. He was, Mm -hmm. in his ignorance, gambling with citizens' lives out of his own selfish political ambitions. People of color had disproportionately higher rates of COVID infections, still do, for various reasons. But, But particularly because... Many of them were our frontline workers. They were putting their bodies on the line so the rest of us could stay at home and stay safe. And the conservative Trump government insisted that the economy should open completely and as soon as possible for business. This, this is necropolitics. So today, COVID deaths are well north of 600,000. And it would be irresponsible for us to say, well, look, this is all due to necropolitics. This is all due to the negligence of the former president. But really, we have to say, of these 600,000 people who died of COVID, how many of those lives could have been spared with better public health policy? But because we didn't have that in place or because there were political motivations behind what we did with COVID-19 and how we responded to it, this many people died. This is what we're talking about here. This is necropolitics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can see where the discussion is going then because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm seeing that if if the state has this enormity of power, necro power, let's say, where it won't help this group of people, and so they're watching their families and friends die right in front of them, then this group of people is confronted with how to respond to that government, first of all, and then also they're confronted with with the existential choice of how they'll live with. And that reminds me of what you shared at the very beginning of these, these quotes of these men saying, it's hard for me to figure out how to lean into life because just there's a specter of death always in front of them. Am I understanding this right, Matthew? No, you're absolutely right about this because this is the existential turn for the queer community. They are facing down their own mortality. And so the question is not just how will I die, but it's how will I live in light of my imminent death? And once, Mm -hmm. because of the drug combination that comes to market in 1996, once the Lazarus effect takes hold, people who thought they were going to die or people who are on the verge of death start coming back to life, then they have to contemplate. How am I going to order the rest of my life? This is the temporality that we've been talking about. This is a reexamination of temporality, interrogating heteropatriarchal temporality, and really conceiving in many, many ways, in a plurality of ways, how we can construct queer temporalities, how we can construct meaningful lives in light 
of the fact that we were going to die. So necropolitics really forces upon us not only why people are dying, but how people should be living. Mm. And so in the wildest lands of queerdom, our queer theorists today want us to think long and hard about how we will conceive of new temporalities in light of the precarity of our existence. In that way, really, like from Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Simone mm-hmm. de Beauvoir and Nietzsche, this is all very yeah. existential. And Albert Camus with the plague, right? Then you really haven't had the experience yet. Death is where we find Lee Edelman in his book, No Future, Queer Theory in the Death Drive. Edelman urges readers to transcend this assimilationist, liberationist binary that we've discussed in previous episodes. Instead, he compels us to subtract ourselves from the sociopolitical order altogether. Okay, so I have a question about this, and I'll throw it in here if that's okay. So, sure. so I I get the impulse to not have to choose between assimilationist and liberationist, and that I mean I I, can't, I think I understand that, but I one question I kept having was why like subtract yourself and go dark, especially a vulnerable minority group and particularly the LGBTQ community at a moment really that was finally like enjoying more social and political acceptance. It seems like it was kind of like stepping out into the light in some ways. And so he's, it seems like he's retracting and saying just like, yeah, subtract ourselves from society altogether. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that was his response? Absolutely, Amy. And I just want to say as well that I don't really claim to know everything that Edelman is thinking when he writes this book. I think that some parts are contradictory or just so incoherent that I would love to have Edelman here with us Mm -hmm. so that I could put specific questions to him. But to the extent that I understand what he's saying, I'll address your question by saying that, you know, today, even though it is fashionable to claim in the last decade that it gets better, maybe you've seen some of these videos on YouTube. campaign, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and even though we can point to Obergefell and the Bostock decisions suggesting momentum, that we've come so very far in certain respects, our theorists say we're actually – nowhere near queer liberation, much less queer temporalities. So let me give you a synopsis of Edelman's argument and then Munoz's argument, and we'll get into our text here. So I think I can answer your question by unfolding their arguments in brief. Edelman claims that in the midst of the ever-threatening necropolitics in American society, especially when queers are still deemed arch enemies to patriarchy, heteronormativity, and temporalities, the arch enemies to the family, marriage, and capitalism, queers shouldn't order their lives aimed toward the future. No, not at all. Queer temporalities should be centered in the now. And again, this is very existentialist in nature. In this place, in the now, queers are outlaws. And in lieu of maintaining the politics of normal, a la Warner, remember, from last episode, assimilating, being normal, being accepted by society, 
queers should just embrace their villainy. Just embrace your outlaw status. Just embrace this uh, positionality as someone on the margins. Edelman urges us not to run away from our arch enemy status, but really embrace it. And yeah, I mean, as, as we've been discussing, this is so much of the nihilistic existentialism mm-hmm. that Friedrich Nietzsche is offering the world. So mm-hmm. can I, yeah. sorry, can I yeah. throw in one thing here? When you, when we say embrace villainy, that doesn't mean, I mean, I'm there embracing perceived villainy, right? Because That's right. My, one of my questions as I was reading this was like, so is that I, I just know what some people will question here. And that will be like, so you can do anything. You can commit any like horrible act and just be like, live for the now. Who cares? Like I can hurt other people and I can act really immorally. That's not what he's saying, right? I mean, no, not obviously at all. not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's saying that actually the emphasis shouldn't be on the sociopolitical order. The emphasis for queers should be figuring out for themselves queer ethics. Actually, mm-hmm. ethics is very much at the heart of Edelman's project here. So mm-hmm. Edelman's project it, you know, is what he terms a Freudian embrace of the death drive. Life mm-hmm. being characterized by heteronormative temporality. This is immoral, actually. Heteronormative temporality with all of its patriarchy is killing us, is choking our planet is an unsustainable way to live. This might even include marriage, reproduction, rearing children, leaving behind inheritance for those children. He says this whole order might be all wrong. And Edelman is bringing not just the queer community, but he's bringing all of humanity back to the drawing board. He wants to blow heteronormative temporality to smithereens. And he really wants Mm -hmm. us to say, we need to figure this out because we cannot continue to proceed any longer with the injustices and the oppression that heteronormative temporality has continued uh, delivering to us. Lee Edelman is saying, if you are branded an outlaw, then be an outlaw. But again, not in the literal sense that you can be a radical. You can radically think outside the parameters of customary traditional society. So yes, go to that dark side. What philosophers and Christian mystics like Pseudo Dionysius and St. John of the Cross called the via negativa. So Edelman urges that queers should spurn the politics altogether and focus on this queer ethics, they do so by subtracting themselves from normative society, politics, and basically the whole reproductive agenda that characterizes heteronormative temporalities. In a way, society has branded queers with the scarlet letter Q, (laughs) right? So, So own it, he's saying to the queers. And then figure out those new ethics, figure out those new queer temporalities, revel in your vulnerable status. Mm. And in this way, there will be some risk associated here, right? Vector of venereal disease, embrace it. BDSM provocateur, own it. Outlaw to respectable society, baby, you were born this way, right? For Edelman, there is no future. So don't participate in what he calls reproductive futurity. This is, you know, again, some more jargon that queer theorists love to serve up to us, but 
it's important. He says, don't participate in reproductive futurity, a future in which reproduction and all things that pertain to it need to be oriented toward. Mm -hmm. Don't embrace that future. And we'll talk more about this concept when we hit the text. But does that clarify Edelman's yeah, point of view? It does. And I just have to throw in really quick just how, again, I mean, it's just so uncomfortable for me. So uncomfortable. <laughs> and, but, but I appreciate, again, your intro because as I'm, you know, as you're saying, like, be an outlaw, be, you know, a vector of venereal disease. I'm like, oh, gosh. But, but I get it. I mean, I, I understand that what he's saying about embracing the outlaw status and what's really coming to my mind is that as a queer temporality, um, that community will have to, the community will have to invent their own ethics. And so I'm actually, then I'm remembering what you shared at the top of the episode where these, how everyone banded together during the AIDS crisis and took care of each other. And that was something that was uniquely, it seems to me, a manifestation of that queer ethics and and seeing like in, in existential threat, what will we do? And it was it was actually like beautifully moral and ethical and caring. So that's what came to my mind as well. Thank you for sharing that, Amy. And I also want to mention that we shouldn't sanitize what Edelman is saying here. There are some really prickly dimensions mm -hmm. to what Lee Edelman is talking about. And it's okay to feel chafed by that. It's okay to feel comfortable by that. I myself personally feel very uncomfortable by some of the things that he is recommending here. But it's important that we embrace a kind of interaction with this mm -hmm. text, even though we feel a little awkward in doing so. Yeah. And bring on the wrestle, man. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and But actually, this is why... Edelman is one step toward where we need to be. And by we, I'm mm -hmm. saying where the queer community needs to be, because I do believe that Munoz rounds things out. He mm -hmm. brings us to a place that we can be inspired and we can live in light of a future that we know we now have. So going back to what Guy said in the, in the story, yes, death is very much part of LGBTQ history. It is, it is, uh, it, you know, it, it is in the very middle, but we still have a future. The future is there. And so how will we live in light of that future? And, and Munoz acknowledges that he's indebted to Edelman. He respects Edelman a great deal. He believed in a horizon where queerness is and should motivate us to realize new echelons of queerness. He, he very much writes in a spiritual way. I, I think for the listening audience, you will probably resonate with Munoz's rhetoric. He writes in the rhetoric of, of prophet, mm. of religious mystic. So if anyone in the listening audience is familiar with the Christian theological concept of the kingdom of God, many theologians talk about it having a quality of already, it's here, but not quite yet. That is the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is with us when Jesus was on earth. And now that Jesus has resurrected and is gone, the Holy Spirit is here. But it won't be fully realized until the second coming and the end of days. So 
if you can use that as a metaphor. Similarly, Munoz says that queerdom isn't realized, but with a hope of queer futurity, and in one day it will. He even says that we're not even queer yet, that we will be queer one day and we're inching toward that place, but we're not queer yet. So like Edelman, he asserted queers should reject the heteronormative temporality replete with the requirements of marriage, children, inheritance, you know, and pursue queer utopian futurity. He wants us to think beyond what we're just accustomed to right now. Now, how do we do this? Well, according to Munoz, we advance toward the queer horizon in the aesthetic realm predominantly. So Edelman wants us to focus on ethics. Munoz wants us to focus in on beauty, on art. So through performance art, like drag shows and punk rock music or physical art displays, or just even informing community itself, what he calls counter publics, these thick queer communities of eros and resistance, he wants us to think aesthetically about the way that we order our lives. He thinks that queer temporalities consists in the aesthetic dimensions of life, not even so much in the ethical dimensions of life that Edelman is really prompting us to think about. Hmm. So that's basically the Cliff's Notes version of each of these texts for today. That was a fantastic introduction, Matthew. Thank you so much. That Cliff's Notes version really, really helps. So yeah, just keep going. Let's dive into the text. So to truly appreciate just how Edelman altered queer theory, we have to understand a few things here. And and I want to be very clear with, with the listening audience. It's really quite amazing. We must truly understand that Edelman, because scholars thought that Edelman had brought queer theory to an abrupt end with the publication of this book, queer theory is trying to think about in the aughts, this book was published in 2004. So beyond that, where do we go with queer theory now? Edelman Mm -hmm. has just declared no future. We are to embrace the death drive. We are to subtract ourselves from the sociopolitical order. So (laughs) where is queer theory to go from there? Okay. And, And that's why I think it's worth our time to figure out why and how it radically contributes to queer theory and to breaking down patriarchy. So should we get into some of these terms here that Lee Edelman uses in his text? Yes, yes, please. Okay. So oftentimes when people talk about queer, they either use it as an adjective, like I am a queer man, or Mm. as an identity, I, I am a queer. I'm owning the fact that I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and that With queer, it's this very elastic concept that captures a lot of the non-normative gender and sexualities in the world. That is the customary way to use the word queer. But Lee Edelman uses queer differently, and we should understand that. For Edelman, queerness, quote, can never define an identity. It can only disturb one. For, For Edelman, queerness can only disrupt politics or that heteronormative temporality that we've been talking about. It cannot produce one. It cannot produce an identity or it cannot produce its own politics. That's why Edelman is saying that we've got to 
back away from the socio-political order. Queerness stands apart from all social structures and political orders. So you've got to go dark. You've got to subtract yourself. You've got to dissolve. That is how Edelman is using queerness in this text. Now, Edelman also says that there is this all-consuming central motif in American politics. He calls it the child, the imaginative, symbolic concept of the heteropatriarchal temporality, a sort of stand-in for all present and future children. Now, he's not talking about any individual child, and he's not even talking about actual children here. He's saying that the child is a symbol for everything that we try to do in our society that we say we're doing for the children. This unnameable, not tangible group who exist in this always escaping future. So it's a future that never comes and it, and it really is a future in which all the barbarity of the present, all the injustice of the present can basically just be excused because we're doing it for the children. So I know it's painful. The end justifies the means here, but we're going to do it. Why? For the child, for the children. And so the child is his concept for all the things that we justify and legitimize that we don't like or that we find unseemly about in the present, how we're denying people constitutional rights or how we're saying we're trying to make a better future when in reality, this better future really never comes. We continue to say that it will come, but honestly, it never comes. Okay. And it's all part of an agenda or a regime of authority that he calls reproductive futurism, or as we've been calling it, heteronormative temporality. Okay. So it's in service to a social script that we've been handed that you date or court someone, that you marry them, that you have children with them, that you work hard. And then at the end of everything, you've worked so hard for your children. You've basically devoted your life all to the child, to the children. And then in your twilight years, you think about what you're going to do to unravel your estate and do everything for those children by giving them a next uh, leg up in the future with the inheritance. So it's this temporality where everything is oriented toward reproduction and the child. That the meaning of life is a man and a woman growing up, producing babies, and that's it, okay? So sometimes it's, it's just hard to talk about these abstract concepts. We really need to put some flesh onto these bones here. And um, let's go to history. I'm a history teacher, and that's what we do. If you want to establish a point, then you invoke some sort of historical parallel. For Edelman, the culture wars are freighted almost exclusively with the concerns of the child. We imagine the masses of American children, and every decision we make needs to first pass through the filter of how any of it will influence children. And when you think about it, like how politicians use the child becomes sort of the theater of the absurd pretty quickly because everything seems to be justified for the sake of the children. Let me give you a historical example here. 
The first organized opposition to gay rights emerged in 1977 with singer Anita Bryant in Miami, Florida. Bryant assembled a political coalition called, and you can't make these things up, Save Our Children Incorporated. <laughs> and for what purpose, mm -hmm. right? What are we saving the children from? Save Our Children Incorporated to overturn a Dade County ordinance that was passed to ban discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodation on the basis of sexual orientation. She wants to save the children because her immediate society wants to save an embattled minority group. She argued that homosexuals were child molesters, saying, and I quote, some of the stories I could tell you of child recruitment and child abuse by homosexuals would turn your stomachs, unquote. Bryant claimed that offering legal protections to homosexuals was tantamount to giving them a license to corrupt our children. Successful, actually, in overturning the ordinance, Bryant took her show on the road. She tried to purge non-discrimination statutes in other cities. Right here in California, Save Our Children Incorporated was influential in promoting Proposition 6 to ban openly queer teachers and staff from public schools. And as I mentioned earlier, the movie Milk, if anyone has seen that film, you know well what a spectacle Prop 6 was and how it was ultimately defeated. The political strategy here of moral panic concerning the child is what Edelman is arguing about here in No Future. He's saying it is perennial. It is shot through all of our socio-political discourse. So let's dig into the text now on page 11. Let's find out what Edelman is saying. So Amy, maybe you could help me out here and read starting with um, page 11, the child. Okay. Yep. Quote, the child has come to embody for us the telos, which means the end goal. I'll insert there. The telos of the social order and come to be seen as the one for whom that order is held in perpetual trust. He then continues, in its coercive universalization, however, the image of the child, not to be confused with the lived experiences of any historical children, serves to regulate political discourse to prescribe what will count as political discourse by compelling such discourse to accede in advance to the reality of a collective future whose figurative status we are never permitted to acknowledge or address. From Delacroix's iconic image of liberty leading us into a brave new world of revolutionary possibility, her bare breast making each spectator the unweaned child to whom it's held out, while the boy to her left, reproducing her posture, affirms the absolute logic of reproduction itself, to the revolutionary waif in the logo that miniaturizes the politics of Les Mis, summed up in its anthem to futurism, the inspirational one day more. We are no more able to conceive of a politics without a fantasy of the future than we are able to conceive of a future without the figure of a child. That figural child alone embodies the citizen as an ideal, entitled to claim full rights to its future share in the nation's good, though always at the cost of limiting the rights real citizens are allowed. For the social order exists to preserve for this universalized subject, this phantasmatic child, 
a notional freedom more highly valued than the actuality of freedom itself, which might, after all, put at risk the child to whom such a freedom falls due. Hence, whatever refuses this mandate by which our political institutions compel the collective reproduction of the child must appear as a threat, not only to the organization of a given social order, but also, and far more ominously, to social order as such, insofar as it threatens the logic of futurism on which meaning always depends. End quote. And that, my friends, is is one of the more intelligible passages from Edelman. Like there's parts, right? I mean, I'm thinking for listeners who aren't able to see the text, but some parts you'll be like, okay, I'm with you. And and maybe then some parts it's like, oh, that was a long sentence. Yes. <laughs> so yes. help us. Yeah. So how do you respond to that passage, Amy? What would you say about this? Well, I would say, yeah, this passage actually was really helpful to me in understanding what he was talking about with the child, right? And so, I mean, just so many images that were familiar to me, right? Like Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People is one that I know. And and then, yeah, with with Cosette on the, the iconic poster of, of Les Mis. And then another one that he mentions that is not in this particular passage, but he talks about, you know, little orphan Annie and always singing tomorrow, tomorrow. And I was recalling how when I was little, we had like the soundtrack of Annie that my parents kept in the car. So we mm-hmm. listened to it over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. And there's two versions because, you know, how like in musicals, they'll have different versions of, you know, the London cast or the New York cast or it, sometimes the the lyrics change. And so there's one version of Annie when she sings tomorrow, where it's say, where she sings, you're only a day away. Like, and so, you know, the, this hope of this little orphan that like tomorrow, a better tomorrow will come and it's only a day away. So you can wait. But then there was another version that was tomorrow, tomorrow. I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. Oh. And even as a six-year-old, I was like, <laughs> how is that hopeful, a hopeful <laughs> message? Like Precisely. on one hand, it's right. It's like the the tomorrow that will never come. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that one word made like all the difference in that message. And so thinking about that helped me really understand this, um, this concept that Edelman's talking about, right? The tomorrow that is sung by this little child, but for the LGBTQ community, that tomorrow is always a day away. And so that hope, if you're following that hope, you'll just eventually become exhausted and fatigued and realize like that it's never coming. So yeah. anyway, but, and also I, it helped me to see also how that image of the child is so pervasive. And and again, he does say it's not any particular child. He doesn't hate orphans or hate like individual <laughs> children, but, right. but that notion, that kind of nebulous, that archetype of the child, I thought, yeah, that is, it's, it does kind of determine the whole momentum of our culture and yeah, and, and it's not just for the queer community, too. He's saying all our politics, all of it, all of our uh, social life is oriented toward the child. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can think of it in a very literal sense that when two parents have children, it seems like their life has been supplanted by the needs and the agenda of your children. And I think you can probably, as a mom, mm-hmm. resonate with that, that you sacrifice so much for your child um, for all of your children. And, um, and so he, 
is speaking in a literal sense, sure, because this is part of the heteronormative temporality that we're talking about. But he's also saying, just as a society, we're told that a better future is coming, and is tomorrow, but it's always just a day away. So it's not only a disappointment for queer people, but it's a disappointment for all of us, because a more hopeful, better tomorrow Mm -hmm. always seems within our grasp, but never graspable. So... Edelman is taking a very pessimistic view here. And and also, curiously, Edelman maintains Mm -hmm. that even gays and lesbians are in on the fixation on the child. And I think we're getting really controversial here. And it's rubbing me the wrong way because as a teacher, so much of my life's work is oriented toward teens. And so many of my same-sex coupled friends, they have their own children. So... Is Edelman just yeah. a child-hating, inwardly focused curmudgeon? <laughs> you know, like is that what we are to conclude about Edelman? And and I don't think so. I think I think we would be misreading him if that were our conclusion. That Edelman is not saying we shouldn't be interested in preserving the innocence of children or to devote our lives to teaching, mentoring, or raising children if that's what we personally want to do. He is a queer theorist, and he is critiquing a very ubiquitous trend in the socio-political discourse of our society. He's, you know, not thinking that that we can effectively neutralize this discourse. He just argues that we should try to resist it. Again, bringing it back to our main themes of these discussions: resist what? Resist heteronormative temporality, as we've you know been been studying it together or you know what edelman is calling here reproductive futurity so uh let's get into it here so amy would you read us our next passage from edelman here and we beg the patience of the listening audience we appreciate your intent listening <laughs> i think it's going to be clear now that you have all of this schema to draw upon okay here we go quote Thus, while lesbians and gay men by the thousands work for the right to marry, to serve in the military, to adopt and raise children of their own, the political right, refusing to acknowledge these comrades in reproductive futurism, counters their efforts by inviting us to kneel at the shrine of the sacred child, the child who might witness lewd or inappropriately intimate behavior, the child who might find information about dangerous, quote-unquote, lifestyles on the internet, the child who might choose a provocative book from the shelves of the public library, the child, in short, who might find an enjoyment that would nullify the figural value itself imposed by adult desire of the child as unmarked by the adult's adulterating implication in desire itself. The child, that is, made to image for the satisfaction of adults an imaginary fullness that's considered to want and therefore to want for nothing. As Lauren Berlant argues forcefully at the outset of The Queen of America Goes to Washington City, quote, a nation made for adult citizens has been replaced by one imagined for fetuses and children, end quote. On every side, our enjoyment of liberty is eclipsed by the lengthening shadow of a child whose freedom to develop undisturbed by encounters or even by the threat of potential encounters with an otherness of which its parents, its church, or the state do not approve 
uncompromised by any possible access to what is painted as alien desire, terroristic ally holds us all in check and determines that political discourse conform to the logic of a narrative wherein history unfolds as the future envisioned for a child who must never grow up, Mm. end quote. So interesting. I had some thoughts about that. And again, it just, yeah, it helped me understand what he was talking about with the child and that um, all of our, you know, our legislation and our, our formation of our, you know, our moral code, I guess, exists to protect this perpetual child. Like you had said, like, it's a future that never comes because there's just always, um, as each generation of children grows up, there's another one to replace it, right? And <laughs> right. so if you're doing, you know, something for the child that that really, truly, that tomorrow will never come. But one other thought that I had as I as I read that is that this ha- actually has application to straight life too. In previous episodes, we've talked about other cultures and particularly the Dutch and how they're so much more open about bodies and sexuality. And I mean, our country was founded by Puritans, really. I mean, like the most zealous extremist religious people. I mean, even Europeans, other, even Western, other Western countries think Americans are so weird about sex, right? Like so prude and so closed. And we've identified how like more openness would really help all kids feel better about their own bodies and make better choices about safe sex, which leads to all kinds of better outcomes like lower STI rates and lower abortion rates and, um, you know, lower unwanted pregnancy rates and and happier, more fulfilled sex lives. And so there's that argument to be made that that would benefit everybody to not like shield the children. Don't ever let them know that sex even exists. Right. And right. that would help everybody. And I do agree with that. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say quickly is that I can I can affirm that I've seen in, you know, in real time playing out what Edelman is talking about when he, you know, he says the the child that might witness lewd or inappropriately intimate behavior, the child that might find information about dangerous lifestyles on the internet. And while I do have mixed feelings about this and I've really, you know, thought about like, what would my personal line be with my, what is my own personal line with my kids and you know, do I try to protect them too much or am I not protecting them enough? I don't know. That's a a conversation for another time. But I will say that this was distressing to me. There was at at my kids' elementary school, one of the sixth grade teachers showed just a short documentary film about a transsexual child. And it was, it just really, I, I thought very compassionately, but I thought very factually just showed a child and kind of the steps that they went through and what it felt like to them and their family. And many of my Mormon mom friends were furious that that had been shown in school and, you know, went into the principal's office. And one of my friends like went in with like a document from our religion, like proclaiming what the family was. And like, wow, I mean, basically And that film, honestly, all it was doing was just acknowledging that trans people exist. Mm -hmm. And and my response, because I got this big group email with like all the other Mormon moms that were at the school. And my response was just like, I'm actually glad my child saw it because I mean, they have, first of all, they're, it exists. Like, what are you going to just like pretend that, 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 that. Like you said the other, you said this on the previous episode, like we're not pyrite. It's not fool's gold. We, we exist, like Mm -hmm. face it. I mean, I just was kind of like, I was shocked actually. And I said, how will our kids have 
compassion and empathy when they meet trans people in the world if they've never had any exposure. So sorry, I'll, I'll be the dissenting voice here, but I'm glad my child saw that movie. Mm. And so I just, oh, I thought, yeah, our LGBTQ people, what do you want for them to like, for you to live your whole life underground because there's always this new crop of children who needs to be protected from even knowing. And boy, I, I, I really see why Edelman and Munoz and these writers feel really held hostage to this idea of we're doing everything for, to, for quote unquote, the children so that they aren't corrupted by even knowing that this exists. Anyway, that was my thought. Yeah, let me give you an example from public policy. In Tennessee, they passed a law. They call it the no homo promo law, where oh teachers can't even say the word gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. They can't even say these words in a classroom because they think that mm. it is just by naming people who exist, corrupting the child, corrupting the children. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this happens quite frequently throughout our country where political arguments are made um, and justified for the sake of the children and a better future for the children that just never come. So thank you for sharing those, those um, stories there with yeah. us. Yeah. So, and some, and obviously, yeah. I mean, obviously it goes without saying, but I just have to say, and some of those kids are gay and, and, mm -hmm. and they will, grow up and that just continues to perpetuate the shame that we've talked about of like those kids know they hear the parents conversations and the adults conversations about like you can't say that word in our class and there's going to be a handful of kids that when they you know whatever age it is that the hormones kick in and they're like oh i'm the thing that we're not even allowed to say the word of and some of these parents who are fighting it are going to grow up being the parents of gay kids and mm. Just the blindness to that is really stunning, I think, and tragic. Yes, indeed. And we are here on a podcast called Breaking Down Patriarchy, and we're thinking, how can we make the future actually better for children? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ironically, what Edelman is saying here is it's not in justifying everything for the child or for the masses of children in ways that we think it's going it, it, that we that we will be able to benefit them he's saying that there's real work that needs to be done we're on the track of heteronormative temporality we need to get off that track because it has been so corrupted by patriarchy we need to rethink better present and better futures and he is giving queers marching orders he's saying we've got to rethink what queerness is doing in the world and how it will advance certain social agendas. Um, and, and, and again, he says we just need to move out of it. We need to move out of this space. So as I, as I described in my summary of No Future, Edelman urges queers to embrace our outlaw status, to live out our vulnerability, to live now and not the future. He says, rather than rejecting with liberal discourse this ascription of negativity to the queer, we might, as I argue, do better to consider accepting and even embracing it, not in the hope of forging thereby some more perfect social order. Such a hope, after all, would only reproduce the constraining mandate of futurism, 
just as any such order would equally occasion the negativity of the queer, but rather to refuse the insistence of hope itself as affirmation, which is always affirmation of an order whose refusal to register as unthinkable, irresponsible, and inhumane. And again, that's really complex there, but what he's asking us to do is to stop thinking in a future-oriented direction. We should think only about what is happening now. Think about the individuals, the adults, the children who exist right here in our presence, and what can we be doing for them right now? Edelman is asking us to be very present-oriented, and he's telling the queer community, you do yourself no service by longing for some future that will never, ever come. You've got to start to fashion your world. You've got to be world makers right here, right now. And that's why he says you've got to go the via negativa, the way of the negative. He says the consequences of such an identification, both of and with the child as the preeminent emblem of the motivating end, though only endlessly postponed, of every political vision as a vision of futurity must weigh on any delineation of queer oppositional politics. For the only queerness that queer sexualities could ever hope to signify would spring from their determined opposition to this underlying structure of the political. Conservatives acknowledge this radical potential, which is also to say, this radical threat of queerness more fully than liberals, for conservatism preemptively imagines the wholesale rupturing of the social fabric, whereas liberalism conservatively clings to a faith in its limitless elasticity, unquote. That's found on pages 13 mm -hmm. and 14. So to paraphrase what Edelman mm -hmm. is saying here, queers have great potential to expose the ruse that is heteronormative temporality, or what Edelman is calling reproductive futurity. Under close inspection, trying to legitimize every rejection of the expansion of civil rights and freedom for historically oppressed minorities, why? For the good of the child, becomes on its face ridiculous and unjust. Edelman is saying here that queers have the potential to show the world this absurdity by subtracting themselves from heteronormative temporality altogether. Conservatives see that queers have the potential and are fearful of that, while liberals are fooled into thinking they can just sort of manage such volatile forces. In, in, in a way, when people say, well, I don't think that we should return back to normal after the vaccine has taken hold in populations and COVID-19 is not as menacing a threat as it was before. Let's just return back to normal. Some people are saying, no, we can't return back to normal because normal was, was destructive too. So we should rethink a new kind of present mm -hmm. for ourselves and, and maybe even a future. What you have Edelman saying here is that the conservatives see that queers are really going to blow up the social order to smithereens. They are more realistic mm -hmm. about the potential that queers have to do this. Liberals just think, well, we'll be able to manage that. We're going to return to normal. We're going to go back to normal. Maybe some things will be a little different, but 
we can channel this in a way that we deem to be productive. And according to Edelman, that is reproductive futurity. That is the status quo. That is the way that we've always done it in a patriarchal fashion. If, according to Edelman, we were really progressive, we would just start over and figure out a new way that we could live our lives. So mm-hmm. Edelman, therefore, wants queers to go dark, to sub- subtract ourselves from the sociopolitical order, refuse to participate in the sociopolitical order. Now, insofar as I, I understand Edelman, and we are now encountering in the thick of it here, how that is, um, is, is potentially dubious, voting is out. Participation in mainstream, mainstream entertainment, out. Liking professional sports or participating in professional sports, out. And perhaps he would even say that queers should refuse the consumeristic capitalist citizenship our democracy so easily rests upon. I'm not, not entirely sure about this, but that seems to me to be where Edelman is going. So I, I'm less clear about what he wants us to do. I know what he is definitely against. The child and the agenda of reproductive futurism should not carry the day in our society's law and policy. That is what I'm inferring from what Edelman is communicating here. And I will read mm-hmm. Edelman's concluding passage in the first chapter, pages 28 and 29, where I think he is really at his clearest. Edelman uses the former Cardinal of Boston, Bernard Law, as an example of what he's talking about here. Now, we want to pay special attention to the fact that his name is Bernard Law. That is his Mm -hmm. last name, Law. And Mm -hmm. there's going to be some literary interplay here between Law, capital L, and Laws, lowercase l, those that our legislatures pass. So on page 28 and 29, Edelman writes... Bernard Law, the former Cardinal of Boston, mistaking or maybe understanding too well the degree of authority bestowed on him by the signifier of his patronymic, denounced in 1996 proposed legislation giving health care benefits to same-sex partners of municipal employees. He did so by proclaiming, in a noteworthy instance of piety in the sky, that bestowing such access to health care would profoundly diminish the marital bond. Society, he opined, quote, has a special interest in the protection, care, and upbringing of children. Because marriage remains the principal and the best framework for the nurture, education, and socialization of children, the state has a special interest in marriage, unquote. With this fatal embrace of a futurism so blindly committed to the figure of the child that it would justify refusing health care benefits to the adults that some children become, Law, capital L, lent his voice to the mortifying mantra of a communal jouissance that depends on the fetishization of the child at the expense of whatever such fetishization must inescapably queer. Some seven years later, after Law had resigned from his, for his failure to protect children from sexual assault by pedophile priests, Pope John Paul II returned 
to this theme, condemning state-recognized same-sex unions as periodic versions of authentic families, quote, based on individual egoism, unquote, rather than genuine love. Justifying that condemnation, he observed, quote, such a caricature has no future and cannot give future to any society, unquote. Queers must respond to the violent force of such constant provocations, not only by insisting on our equal right to the social order's prerogative, not only by avowing our capacity to promote that order's coherence and integrity, but also by saying explicitly what law, capital L, law, and the Pope and the whole of the symbolic order for which they stand in each and every expression or manifestation of queer sexuality, F, the social order and the child in whose name we're collectively terrorized. F any, F the way from Les Mis, F the poor innocent kid on the net, F laws, both with capital L's and with small, F the whole network of symbolic relations in the future that serves as its prop, right? Unquote. That is Edelman. And he's saying, essentially, that for queer people, they have to own their role as a disturber of the peace. They are disturbing us. They are, they, they are disquieting us with a kind of social regime dedicated toward the child, but in reality serving as a way to deny people basic civil rights. And Edelman is giving us some marching orders here. He's saying, we must own our outlaw status, go dark, be uh, about the business of the via negativa. Don't participate in a social system that is going to deny you your humanity. What you really need to do is you need to frustrate the entire thing, primarily by just not being in it, by not participating in it. And then also through either ethical formations or when we get to Munoz, through aesthetic formations, through the creation of art, we should upend this social order. We should radically problematize the social order. We should lead a revolution against the social order. And this is what we've been talking about. We should explode the heteronormative temporality and introduce into the world alternative queer temporalities. So Edelman, he believes that queers can do this best by just living their own lives. And it doesn't matter if society deems the lives that they live seemly or worthy. He says you should live that life out that you have. On page 25, he says, queerness, therefore, is never a matter of being or becoming, but rather of embodying the remainder of the real internal to the symbolic order. He draws upon some psychoanalytical ideas here. He uses one of these thinkers, his name is Lacan, and he uses the word jouissance, a kind of queer pleasure, a 
ordering of life according to one's own priorities in ways that brings maximum joy to oneself. We might think of the utilitarians here who are battling over the greatest good for the greatest number. What does good mean? Is good just a maximization of pleasure here? Is it a reduction of pain? Is the pleasure sexual pleasure? Or is it about the bohemian lifestyle? Or is it a kind of eudaimonia, a high-minded jouissance, a high-minded pleasure where we are contemplating the greatest books and art that has been written, or we're trying to advance better laws in our society, this sort of high-minded eudaimonia that John Stuart Mill speaks about. For Edelman, he's maintaining that queers really should live their own lives. And I could get into the details here where we might have our eyebrows raised and say, so our sex clubs on the table, polyamory, all these things that respectable society doesn't participate in. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what he means. All of that <laughs> is on the table. Anything that your imagination can conceive of right now, so long as it is within the bounds of two consenting adults or many consenting adults, yeah, you got the right idea, okay? That's exactly where he's going with this. And again, I'm presenting the idea. I'm not necessarily endorsing the idea. I think it's important for us not to sanitize the idea either. And he mm -hmm. then says in this sort of la, 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 live for today, right? He says, <laughs> and so this is on page 31, what is queerest about us Queerest within us and queerest despite us is this willingness to insist intransitively to insist that the future stop here. There is no children that we must live for. There is no future in which we can hope for. There is now and we can own the now with all of its precarity, with all of its tragedy, with all of its inhumanity. We should live now. The future stops here. And when he said the future, the future stops here, <laughs> that sent shockwaves throughout the world of queer theory. Does this mean mm -hmm. this spells the end of queer theory? We have nothing more to theorize. The future stops here. Yeah, it sent a shock through me too. I mean, not only because he was calling into question like every part of the, the moral framework by which I've lived my life <laughs> mm. from the time I was born and, and all the choices I've made and what I've, you know, what's brought me the most joy in my life, but also just curiosity about like, is that a viable moral philosophy to <laughs> say the future stops here? Like, I, I mean, yeah, he's, he's calling into question things that I did not know could be called into question. But it didn't stop there, right? I mean, queer theory hasn't stopped with Edelman because people have responded to him. And that's why it's so, so valuable, right, to read him to because then it gives us such an interesting point from which we can hear the counterpoint and discover the wisdom in conversations and argumentation and debate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I explained to my students about Karl Marx, if all that we ever knew about Karl Marx was the Communist Manifesto, then yeah. we would have a great misunderstanding of what Marx is talking about. That for me personally, I reject what Karl Marx is asking us to do 
in light of his critique, and it's usually the critique that gets skipped over, that we need to read Das Kapital. Mm -hmm. We need to understand mm -hmm. what it is about the capitalist system that creates this alienation in ourselves, between fellow human beings, between us and nature and us and society, that we have to fully appreciate the critique before we're even ready to entertain what prescriptions he's offering us in this communist utopian future that he writes about in the Communist Manifesto. So when I'm reading Edelman here, I'm thinking with other queer theorists coming out of 2004, 2005, 2006, that Edelman gets it so right in his critique. And we can appreciate that mm -hmm. about what he is critiquing here. He's critiquing in the most dramatic way possible the heteronormative temporality that we've been discussing, what he calls this sort of reproductive futurism. But and I'll speak for myself here. I am not necessarily willing to go with him in the direction of what he's advising us to do with ethics and how the future stops here. And this is why it's so important for us to discuss Munoz, Jose Esteban Munoz, Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity in 2009, where Munoz is saying essentially what we just said, that Edelman's critique is spot on. What a genius. But does that mean that queers cannot hope for a better future? And if they can't, then what is the sustenance for the journey to enact queerness if we really have nothing that we can sustain ourselves with? Does that make sense, Amy? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. So let's go into Munoz's text here. And he's somewhat repetitive. Um, the book is filled with lots of great examples. Each chapter expounds a different dimension of what he calls queer futurity. So we're not going to get into the details there. We'll just present his queer theory and tease out some of the insights. Let's start reading on page one. This is what is so coherent and easily understandable about Munoz. He just sort of lays it out on the table on the very first page, and he does so very eloquently. So Amy, could you read us page one of Munoz's text? Yes. He says, queerness is not yet here. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer. Yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The future is queerness's domain. Queerness is a structuring and educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. We must strive in the face of the here and now's totalizing rendering of reality to think and feel a then and there. Some will say that all we have are the pleasures of this moment, but we must never settle for that minimal transport. We must dream and enact new and better pleasures, other ways of being in the world, and ultimately new worlds. Queerness is a longing that propels us onward beyond romances of the negative and toiling in the present. Queerness is that thing that lets us feel that this world is not enough, 
that indeed something is missing. Often we can glimpse the worlds proposed and promised by queerness in the realm of the aesthetic. The aesthetic, especially the queer aesthetic, frequently contains blueprints and schemata of a forward-dawning futurity. Both the ornamental and the quotidian can contain a map of the utopia that is queerness. Turning to the aesthetic in the case of queerness is nothing like an escape from the social realm, insofar as queer aesthetics map future social relations. Queerness is also a performative, because it is not simply a being, but a doing for and toward the future. Queerness is essentially about the rejection of a here and now, and an insistence on potentiality or concrete possibility for another world. (laughs) <laughs> end quote. Wow, is that different from Edelman? I mean, it's the opposite. It's an argument. It's an argument, isn't it? Truly. With and Edelman. you can definitely see that he is in conversation with Edelman here. Yeah. He is granting that the the future might be hard to see, but we need to keep that future in mind if we're ever going to be able to combat the heteronormative forces in the present from overwhelming us, from suffocating us. So he's agreeing with Edelman that our queerness is not an identity. It's not a political organizing principle. It's it's not identity politics. He's totally in agreement with Edelman here on that point. But he says... With you, Edelman, we have to enact our queerness. Our queerness lies in its destabilizing the norms, in its destabilizing social scripts, in the heteronormative temporalities that we have been told we need to embrace lock, stock, and barrel. But what he rejects about Edelman is Edelman's nihilism. He says, absolutely, we've got a future. And only in hoping and longing and striving toward that future Will we ever be able to do the work in the present that we need to do in order to breathe, in order to, in, to, to have the pleasures that we long for and the, the ethics and the aesthetics that we are capable of? We have to believe in a future so that we can do that work in the present. He, you know, When you read Edelman, there is a sense in which Edelman is individualistic and that it's really so inwardly focused and it's anchored in the now. But for Munoz, he embraces collectivity. He embraces intersectionality. We haven't really talked about how these ideas overlap with race and with gender per se, because if it is focused on pleasure, then we're not really taking, taking into account the full rainbow of options of, of gender. So according to Munoz, we have to think in terms of the collective intersectionally. We have to hope. We have to believe that a utopia is possible. And that's, of course, very different than embracing a Freudian death drive, which is what Edelman claims. So let's read a little bit more in what Munoz is saying about this queer future. He writes, quote, the queer futurity that I am describing is not an end, but an opening or horizon. Queer utopia is a modality of critique that speaks to quotidian gestures as laden with potentiality. 
the queerness of queer futurity, like the blackness of a black radical tradition, is a relational and collective modality of endurance and support. It is being in, toward, and for futurity. He's saying sort of what I was describing before as the already not yet quality of the kingdom of God. Queerdom is here in a moment, but it is breaking forth into a future that brings great possibility. So, so Munoz is trying to capture the spirit of the already not yet. Munoz goes on to say, quote, Lee Edelman, in his powerful polemic, No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive, recommends that queers give up hope and embrace a certain negation endemic to our objection within the symbolic. What we get in exchange for giving up on futurity, abandoning politics and hope, is a certain jouissance that once defines and negates us. I have attempted to outline this polemic in a fashion that displays some of my admiration for it. I agree with and feel hailed by much of no future. Indeed, when I negotiate the ever-increasing sidewalk obstacles produced by oversized baby strollers on parade in the city in which I live, if you've ever been to Noe Valley, you know what he's talking about there. (laughs) The sheer magnitude of the vehicles that flaunt the incredible mandate of reproduction as a world historical virtue, I could not be more hailed with a statement such as, quote, queerness names the side of quote, not fighting for the children, outside the consensus by which all politics confirms the value of reproductive futurism, unquote. But as strongly as I reject reproductive futurity, I nonetheless refuse to give up on concepts such as politics, hope, and a future that is not kid stuff, unquote. Okay. So he's essentially saying, yeah, I get Edelman and I agree with Edelman regarding his critique of a future that is so the child oriented, doing everything for the children, everything. The ends justifies the means to justify any barbarity for the sake of the child. But he's saying we cannot sustain this way of living if we have no politics, if we have no hope, if we don't believe in a future. And again, this is what Harvey Milk is saying in the 1970s. Harvey Milk says about people coming out of the closet, about kids who long to be themselves, you gotta give them hope. Hope is what will get you through the hard times. Hope will get you through being misunderstood. Hope will get you through being stigmatized and being brutalized by heteronormative temporality, by homophobia, by patriarchy. Hope is going to get us through. And so this is what I hear Munoz saying, that I don't see an Edelman, let's just live in the moment and forget about the future. I I can't see how we can sustain that as a community. What do you think about that idea, Amy? I mean, I don't have anything profound to say, that's, Matthew. That's okay. I mean, obviously, it's <laughs> yeah. like, yes, it's more optimistic and it's inspiring and I resonate with it personally much more. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't have anything to say about it. No, no. that That's that's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't find Edelman to be inspiring and mm-hmm. I don't need to find Edelman to be inspiring. 
I really appreciate the fact that he's taking the bull by the horns and he's naming something, he's naming a trend in our sociopolitical discourse that is really profound. It is revealing and making good on that social critique. Munoz is inspirational. He is saying, look, we can take this critique and we can build upon it for these counter publics of pleasure and of political resistance and of world making. Let's get a little bit more into what he says about how we may exercise queer futurity. Amy, can you read that last quote for us? Mm -hmm. He says, I dwell on hope because I wish to think about futurity. And hope, I argue, is the emotional modality that permits us to access futurity par excellence. Queers, for example, especially those who do not choose to be biologically reproductive, a people without children, are, within the dominant culture, people without a future. They are cast as people who are developmentally stalled, forsaken, who do not have the complete life promised by heterosexual temporality. This reminds one of the way in which worried parents deal with wild queer children, how they sometimes protect themselves from the fact of queerness by making it a stage, a developmental hiccup, a moment of misalignment that will hopefully correct itself or be corrected by savage pseudoscience and coercive religion, sometimes masquerading as psychology. In this chapter, I consider the idea of queerness as a stage in a way that rescues that term from delusional parents and others who attempt to manage and contain the potentiality that is queer youth. In this chapter, I enact a utopian performative change in the signification of the phrase, it is only a stage, deployed in the name of the queer child. In this case, the queer wild child of a punk subculture. So there are two things that I want to tease out of this passage. One comes out of personal experience where I often have people ask me, so are you and Rob going to have children? And mm -hmm. I get this actually pretty frequently. And to some extent, I get a little agitated by the frequency that I'm asked it. But mm -hmm. I usually just quip. Well, in any given semester, I have about 50 kids of my own. So I have mm -hmm. all of the children I need. Um, mm -hmm. But really, I don't, I, I hear in that an expectation that to be completely fulfilled or to be in a marriage or to be in a relationship, you should think about having children or you should enact that reproductive futurism. Instead, Munoz is prompting us to think about how we can use our queerness to open up new horizons of thinking and being in the world. And this is where his personal career as a professor of theater, and he's passed now, but when he was a professor of theater, he used the theater as a venue for people to explore what was possible. And as teachers, we are not called upon to state what has been, if you're a history teacher, um, or what is, say, if you're a biology teacher. But as teachers, I also hope that what we can do is expand new horizons for our students. And that's what I hear from Munoz. He's expanding new horizons for all people, 
for women, for people of color, as a person of color himself, for queers, how can we make the world more free? How can we make it more enriching? How can we make it more generative? How can, how can we make it more joy-filled? That is what he as a theater professor is habituated in doing in his profession. He's also saying we should all be about that work. We should all think about ways that we can start to perform and live out the future right now. So he points to drag shows as a way to perform the possible, to perform the future. Um, and you could also consider all literature and all theater, at least if it does its job well, to open up those new horizons of possibility for us. That's what I hear Munoz saying here. Perfect, Matthew. That's, yeah, a, a perfect quote, actually, to end on with Munoz, because it's so so clear and sums up some of those main themes in his work. So as we approach the end of the episode and of this really marathon of this four-part series, what would you say has been a big takeaway for you from the texts that we've talked about today? Okay, Amy, if I can just be permitted to offer two. Yes, go <laughs> right ahead, <laughs> All right. please. Perfect. And one will be a personal takeaway and then the other will be more academic. Some in my biological family, including my father and sister, guided by religious ideology, have really shown themselves incapable of seeing the humanity in me, my husband, and in the LGBTQ community. It really has been a sad experience for me. I'm so sorry. Their sort of do it for the child ends when the child becomes an autonomous being deciding and acting for themselves in the world. And, you know, lamentably, judging from the teen homelessness population in the country, for other American families, do it for the child ends the day they discover their kid is queer. According to the Center for American Progress, 10% of teens are queer and 40% of the teen homeless population is queer. Sad. Reproductive futurity always seemed flawed to me. Thankfully, as if surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses to quote the book of Hebrews in the Bible, queer elder folk and other friends have more than made up this familial deficit in my life. As with Guy, who you'll remember at the top of the program, who imparted to me family stories from my community's past, queer relationality can give way to queer temporality. Put in other words, having experiences like that where I am built up and built into by various people in my life, people who come from the LGBTQ community, that can spur me on to creating new temporalities for those in my life, for those in my community, or just for me myself. Being married, I'm still trying to figure out really what that means to me. H however, as with Edelman, I need to claim my queer present. It's imbued with such meaning and such purpose as a queer man. I have something so very unique. And, and really Edelman is challenging me 
that before I pontificate about queer futures, I, I really need to grapple with what my present should entail. So that's that personal dimension here. And then my academic takeaway is that queer theory has only started to help us dismantle patriarchy and heteronormative temporalities in the United States. And and, and I'm hoping that queer theory continues to advance lines of critique that will fundamentally destabilize patriarchy and eradicate it. The SCOTUS, that is the Supreme Court of the United States' Obergefell and Bostock decisions must be harbingers of the queer futurity on the horizon. They cannot signify sort of the be-all and end-all of queerness now. It's just a way station. It's just a stepping stone. We have to keep moving. Queers and their straight allies have yet to channel the full and complete radicality of the Stonewall and riots. And we should, all of us together, LGBTQ people, their straight allies, all of us together, we should strive toward that goal. Queers and their allies, and I always want to mention this because I have so many straight friends who are in this fight, this struggle, this challenge with me and never want to sideline them because I would even argue I wouldn't have the rights that I have if it weren't for my straight allies, but also if it weren't for the struggle and the sacrifices of my elder forefathers, foremothers, and four persons in the queer community. So all of us, queers and our allies, shouldn't just content ourselves with conformity, assimilation, or the status quo. We really should make the future because the future is queer. That's where queerness lies. And we need to strive toward that future. What does that look like? Well, <laughs> the devil's in the details, right? We don't really quite know yet, but we should cease playing along with reproductive futurity that is what we hear from Edelman, and move toward the horizon of queer futurity, which is what we learn from Munoz. So Amy, as we're concluding this episode and our series here, what are some takeaways for you? I would say, specifically from this episode, I have two images, two, two passages that come to mind, one from Munoz and one from Edelman. That that mental image that I have um, from the last passage, or from one of the last passages we read in Munoz of him being overrun by baby strollers <laughs> is a like a memorable image to me. I may have been one of those parents on the street pushing a stroller with three other kids hanging on to me and like the very symbol of reproductive futurity. I I never really thought to question ever that heteronormative temporality I loved taking care of my younger siblings when I was little. I'm the oldest of five children. I loved babysitting. I never questioned the, questioned the script and the momentum that was driving me forward to get married to a man and then have babies. And I never stepped back to question that. And until I read these books, I never realized how much our world really is oriented toward children. And because that script and that drive happened to be in sync with my natural state, my natural personality, and my natural desires, I never noticed it. It's like the fish swimming in the water that doesn't know what water is because I, I fit, right? It fit me. And so stepping into Munoz's shoes in that scene where he's on the sidewalk 
And like, I'm another character in the story. I'm, you know, I'm one of the, the extras in the scene and he's the central character in that scene. And in other scenes um, in his book, I thought of how it might feel to inhabit a world for him where if, if I were him, where my natural rhythm wasn't in sync with what the world was doing. And I, thought, oh my gosh, that would feel so different. And it might feel really lonely and it might feel really angering. And then realizing, oh my gosh, there's actually tons of us whose hearts beat to a different rhythm and whose plot needs a different script. And then I think I would be angry that, that you know, we are all being restricted and controlled by this unjust matrix of power that doesn't even recognize our existence and that we have this other rhythm. Anyway, I, I, I really appreciated again, being able to step into the shoes of other people and into try to inhabit what that would feel like. And that's why we're studying this on breaking down patriarchy is because that matrix of power that, that exists and that I didn't really notice growing up is, is really a, a patriarchal power matrix. The other thing that I wanted to share is from Edelman, and it's that passage that kind of describes the same thing, I guess. It's that quote where he talks about Bernard Law, and then especially that part where um, Pope John Paul II calls same-sex relationships a, a parody of real relationships and a caricature that has no future and cannot give future to any society. And to me, when I read it, I thought, oh, this is where he got his title, No Future. And I thought it made a lot of sense for him. To, to arrive where he did at like, you know what? F the future then, F the children. We're living how we need to live. And and it, it was heartbreaking in a way. And to see like just that really overt homophobia and, and disdain for LGBTQ persons was um, really striking to me. And again, it just developed not only my understanding, but my empathy. So I end these books and this whole series with you, Matthew, with so much more empathy and with, a, I mean, a vastly deeper understanding of history of LGBTQ life and a completely new acquaintance with the landscape of queer theory, including the significant disagreements within queer theory. I understand heteronormative temporality now having taken a step back to view it as such. I mean, that's a huge epiphany for me. I'll always remember your introduction to this episode about AIDS. And of course, I will always hold sacred in my heart our first episode when you listen to my story with so much love and mercy. And, and I'll always remember your courage in sharing your story on that first episode. So I'll be grateful to you forever, Matthew. You're the best. Amy, I am so thankful that you asked me to do this project with you. I have really appreciated the tender way that you've approached this material, how respectful that you've been, how bold you've been, how unflinching in pursuing the truth that you've been. It's been wonderful to be with such an intelligent and articulate and empathetic and caring conversation partner. So. Um, you'll always be my friend from the bottom of my heart. I really do have the fondest feelings for you. All my love. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Hug. Huge hug. <laughs>
On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading another book by one of my heroes and my favorite authors, Bell Hooks. This time we'll be covering her book, Feminism is for Everybody, from the year 2000. I think I've purchased about 50 copies of this book and given it as a gift to many, many friends because it is so clear, it's so wise, it's so compassionate, and it's also a very short, really easy read. So see if you can get a copy. Again, it's Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. And I'm excited to have you join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.